Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. This week we have the privilege of reading Parsha's Tazria. And because it is a leap year, we are not reading Tazria and Mitzorah. We're just reading Tazria, which gives us a little bit more chance to dive deeper into Tazria. Normally we're trying to make our way through to Parshios. We have an extra Parsha Sachodesh the Shabbos as well. And Rosh Chodesh. This is a three Sefer Torah Shabbos. So plan your Shabbos day accordingly. Say three Sefer Torah Shabbos, which is always exciting. I want to thank our generous sponsors of the Parsha series for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Our learning should be Leila Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. This morning's Shear is also sponsored by Sharon Wenger and Jonathan Wenger, in loving memory of their dear husband and father, Bruce Wenger, Dovari Ben Yisrael's sixth year at site is Chavzayin Adar Beis. Thank you for that generosity and for that sponsorship. Also, our learning is for Yerifua Shleima, Faster to Hilabas Ariel at Sipora. Parshas Tazria appears on page 608 in the art scroll Stone Chumash and begins by Daber Shalom Moshe Lemor, Daber Bene Yisrael Lemor, Isha Ki Sazria, Vialda Zachar. If a woman conceives and gives birth to a boy, Vitamashivas Yamim Kimeni Das Dvosa Titma, there is a impurity that she uh, has, she is contaminated with and she needs to purify herself from. But before we dive into that, the bigger question is, what does the beginning of this parsha have to do with the end of last week's? If we read the Torah in succession, without the break that we normally and are accustomed to reading it with, but if we simply go from the end of one parsha to the other, if we were to simply open the Chumash and study the Chumash straight, we would see the contrast, the comparison, the juxtaposition of the different sections of the different narratives. The very end of Shemini deals with what? The laws of Kashrus. The laws of Kashrus. The beginning of Tazriah begins with what? What is the connection between the two? Rav Yisrael Salanter says the great founder, father of the Muslim movement, So we deal with childbirth, but childbirth is an impurity, which is the beginning of the theme of impurity, that whose main focus, whose main theme is tsaras, is tsaras. So what does tsaras, negaim, what do the spiritual leprosy and impurity have to do with keeping kosher, the end of last week's parsha? Says Rav Yisrael, ha-negaim boim al-avon lashon hara, u-bo'uv sh'rov b'nei adam n'esharim z'hiras yisera me'achilis machos asuros, u-bo'kev shim v'shiva pa'amim sh'l'yivlu tolas ketana, e'nam n'esharim ka'at tzorach b'chavad z'lasam, u-le'item lo'asim aso b'piyem, Says Rav Yisrael, you know why we have these two topics juxtaposed one to the other? Because the Torah is not only concerned with what you put into your mouth, the Torah is equally or more concerned with what comes out of your mouth. The end of last week's Parsha Shmini deals with the laws of Kashras, how careful we are to inspect for insects and to confirm that the Heksher is valid and legitimate and to make sure that our utensils don't get mixed up and confused we have Pesach seminars and workshops all about the food. And despite that, you text and you email and ignore everything that we said and follow up with all of your questions as if we did not give an entire seminar about it because we're also concerned about the minutiae and the details of every little negligible thing that enters our mouth. Says Rav Yisrael, that's good, it's important, we should be vigilant, we should be careful. Of course, non-kosher is spiritual poison we spoke about last week. Same way you wouldn't take chances. If you had any doubt whatsoever, you wouldn't put something that could kill you in your mouth, 
Why would you put something that could spiritually kill you and compromise and corrupt you into your or your children's mouths? So it's good, it's important. But says Rabbi Yisrael, it's important not only to be careful with what goes in our mouth, but it's important to be careful equally with what comes out. And that's why we have the connection. Just like you're careful that something impure, just like you're careful that something forbidden doesn't go in your mouth, be equally careful that something impure, that something forbidden doesn't come out of your mouth. Torah spends more precious, valuable real estate to parshios on what comes out of our mouth. And the process of rehabilitation, the process of repair is much greater, more intense when it comes to saying the wrong thing, what comes out of our mouth than what comes in it. So therefore, says Rabbi Yisrael, that's why there is such an emphasis and that's why we are so careful here. What an important and powerful message. What a recalibration of our priorities. We have to care about both. You have some people who are makbid. They are strict and stringent on laws of kashras. And then they are cruel in their gossip and slander. They're ruthless in how mean they are with their words. And you have other people who say, look, I'm nice and I'm kind and I'm careful and I'd never speak that way. Kosher, not so much, not as important. Being a kind and a good and a moral and an ethical person, that's what matters. As Jews, we strive for both. We can't emphasize one to the exclusion of the other. We are careful both with what goes in our mouth and what comes out of our mouth because that is the recipe and formula for achieving real holiness. Rashi quotes Isha Kisa Zriya, when a woman conceives, Zakhtar Rashi, Amar of Simlai, in the name of Rav Simlai, Kishem just like the creation of human beings in the process and the story of the genesis of the world. When is man created? Man, I mean humanity, created. At the very end, on Friday afternoon, on the sixth day, after after the animals, domesticated, non-domesticated, fowl and fish, that's why we had in previous parshios, Zos Torah here are the laws of animals. Kosher, non-kosher, creepy, crawly, flying, swimming. These are the laws of the animals. And now our parsha, Isha Kisazria. Just like in Genesis, it's animals, then humans, so too in the laws, first animals, then humans. The Medrash adds, Vayikaraba, Zacha Adam Omrim Loata Kadamta Lachomaisa Bracious. If a person merits, we say, you preceded everything in creation. And if a person doesn't live up to their humanity, if a person acts like an animal, we use that in our very vernacular. You live in a pigsty, you're stuffing your face, you eat like an animal. You're acting like an animal, immorally, unethically, you're indulging compulsive instinct behavior. It's an animal impulse, it's an animal instinct. You're not engaging your uniquely godly sense of discipline. You're indulging your animal impulse and compulsion. So such a person, we say, the little worm, the little flea, the little fly precedes you in creation. So I don't understand. Depending on the person's behavior is the chronology of when they were created. What are you talking about? Open the Chumash, read the beginning of Parshas Bereshis, and there you have the timeline of creation. 
no matter how a person behaves, the reality is that we were the culmination, we were the climax of creation, we came last, we were the ultimate creation. There's a hierarchy. If you look at the timeline of creation, you see an increased progression and sophistication of creation as we go. That's why women like to say, who is really the final creation, which is the peak and pinnacle of creation, they like to say, woman, woman is created last. She is extracted from man's rib. So if it follows that hierarchy and there is progress, then truly the peak and pinnacle of creation, they like to say. So we have this hierarchy and we have this timeline. So what do you mean based on a person's behavior? If you live in a clean room and if you eat with a sense of discipline and if you are able to be sovereign over your own instinct in Yetzirah, then we say you preceded creation, you were first. And if not, you come after the bug, the flea, the fly, the worm, you're last. It's not a function, it's not subjective based on your behavior. It's a timeline. What does the birth certificate of the worm say? What time? And what does the birth certificate of the human being say? It's an objective measure. That is the question of Rosedel Epstein. We say to him, Do we communicate to someone something that's not true? Can you change the reality based on your behavior? If you live a virtuous life, you came first. If you live a non-virtuous life, then the flea came first, the fly came first. So says Rav Zedel Epstein, the Mashkiach of Torah, or Tachlis Kolabriya Hu Adam Shu Habriya. In his Sefer Ha'aros, he writes that the Tachlis, the ultimate purpose of the whole world, is the human being. The world is here for us. We don't worship the environment. We don't worship the animal kingdom. We don't worship the plant kingdom. They and it are all here for us. That's why we were created last. First, we set the stage. First, Hashem put everything in place. First, He stocked the cabinets. And then He invited us into the room. Then He invited us into the world, onto that stage, which was entirely set. So everything would be ready. Someone doesn't invite a guest to their house and say, you sit here like a doofus, I'll be in the kitchen first starting to prepare. You invite the guest and when they arrive, everything is ready to go. Table is set, everything's prepared, the courses are ready to be served. So Hashem, we are His guest in this world and He first set the stage, He prepared, everything was ready. So that's what the Medrash means, says Rezidel Epstein. When we fulfill the purpose of creation, we are here on a mission. We are here to recognize that the world is our stage. It serves us. And now we are the actors on that stage. We are meant to fulfill a mission. We are meant to live God's script, so to say, to fulfill his mission and why we're here. And when we do, we precede creation, meaning God created with us in mind. But when we don't, when we give in to impulse and compulsive behavior, when we act like an animal, then we are violating and failing the very reason and purpose that we are here, then we are not fulfilling that God had us in mind and created all of it for us. Then everything else came first. We are the lowliest and we are the last. And that's maybe also what we mean. So had in mind, yes, we were created last chronologically in the timeline, but he had us in mind first. All of it is here for us. 
So we give our life meaning and we give our life purpose in how we live it. Do we think carpe diem, seize the day, capture and accumulate as much pleasure and happiness as we can? It's selfishly all about us and our ego. Then we're lower than an animal. We act like an animal. That's all that matters. Or are we here for a mission? Are we here for a purpose? Are we here to make the difference? Are we here to make the world a better place? Then we are engaging and elevating and are we are empowered by everything in the world and it's why Hashem created it. There's so much packed into this insight of Rav Zedel, which we're not going to unpack right now, but one of the implicit messages, which I think is important to remind ourselves, given the times we live in and the different currents that flow, is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put us in a world Hashem said, I set the stage, it's a beautiful world, and now serve it and protect it. Don't ruin it. But the reason that we care for it, the reason we care about the environment, or we should, the reason we should have an awareness about the water levels and the oceans and whatever climate that objectively all agree is being impacted and what we can do without getting into politics. I think the politics surround what we're supposed to do about it, not around what the reality is of it. And la'avda shamra is not worshiping something else. It's about protecting that which is supposed to be there for us. Similarly with animals. Tsar balechayim. We are protective and we're sensitive and we care to avoid the pain of the animal. Why? Because we worship animals. We're there for animals. We have to care about the animals. No, the animals are there for us. And from your leather shoes and leather belts and the leather seats that you drove in to get here and from the fleshic dinner you'll have tonight, I know you agree with me. But we have to know that we are caring about animals because the animals are there for us, not because we concede or serve or are subservient to the animals. So we were created last and we have a responsibility to all that comes before, not because we serve it, but because we protect it so it can best serve us and our mission here in this world. So that's what Rashi's telling us, that first we had Zos Torah Sabahema. We need to have perspective and context. Yes, we care about the animals. And yes, we don't cause animal suffering. And you feed your animal before you even feed yourself because we have a responsibility. But the reason that we do that is not because we serve the animal. We don't subscribe to pita, but rather we eat pita in hummus. It's delicious. But rather because we care because we are to be sympathetic, kind, sensitive beings, and we need to protect animals who can better be there to serve us. That's why they're here. That's why they're all about. Parakid, Beis, Pasuk, Gemma. Moving along. On the eighth day, on the eighth day, the baby boy is born, there is a bris. On the eighth day, we know the bris is the eighth day. This past Shabbos we spoke about. Maharal and others explain why the number eight the number eight, I quoted the Chalban, Chaim Kohn, why Bayom Hashmini? If the Hakama Samishkam was really the first of Nisan, why is it described as the eighth day? Because the number eight, seven is the natural world, seven are the days of the week, seven are the rules of nature, seven is what we can predict and anticipate, and eight is one above. Eight is supernatural. Eight is transcendent. Eight is what you can't predict. Eight is miraculous. Eight is unexpected. Hanukkah is eight, Bris is eight, and we see the number eight. Here, Bris is on the eighth day. Says Rav Nachman of Breslov. Again, he doesn't say this explicitly. This beautiful Sefer, Shulchan HaShabbos and Rav Nachman, collects teachings of Rav Nachman based on and applied to the parsha, And says the following, Over Shiva Yamim Shal Orla. 
Why does a baby enter the bris? With the bris, the baby enters the... Not a trick question. The covenant of Avram Avinu. Until then, the baby is an oral, ineligible for carbon Pesach. Not complete yet a human being. It's like the suit that the tailor left the tag on. And it's up to the consumer to cut the pockets or cut off the tag and finish the suit, the outfit. Because Baruch Hu engaged and invited us to be his partner in creation. And the last act of creation to complete and perfect creation, he left the tag on and he said, cut it off and press go. But he didn't say to do it on day one. You know, when, when the baby's born and the nurse says, would you like to cut the umbilical cord? Which is a halacha question whether a father can. The nurse doesn't say, would you like to cut off the foreskin? Why not? If in fact the foreskin is a source of impurity and we are elevating the child and completing the act of creation of the child and inviting and escorting the child into the covenant of none other than Avram Avinu with a bris, why do we wait a week? Why are we delaying? Why are we pushing it off? Why don't we do it immediately? Call them all to the hospital room or bring the baby to the shul for a couple hours, sneak him out so you could have locks and bagels and an omelet station and get the bris done on day one. Why do we wait until the eighth day? We, we make the baby live with an orla for seven days, for a week? Because of Rav Nassim, so Rav Nassim, the great student of Rav Nachman of Breslau, writes in the Kutei Halachos, This question we're asking, which is, if there is an elevated state of Kedusha, of holiness, of sanctity, of consciousness, and that's what we're striving for, why do we delay? Why do we wait? Why don't we do it right away? It's not only true with the bris milah. We find it in every area of holiness. For example, klipa kodemis lepri. The peel, the shell, always comes before the fruit. What happens is, there's, there's a seed, there's a planting of holiness that germinates, that grows, and it only blossoms and becomes exposed. We only access it later. First, it's hidden. Hester v'helam. Kach l'mashal ha'isa eretz Yisrael b'tchil b'meshach shanam rabbos tachas shilton kena'an. The holiest place on earth, the holiest land on earth, our beautiful, precious homeland, the land of Israel, was not ours from the start. Even though, yes, Avraham walked its width and its breadth, and it was promised his progeny, it wasn't smooth sailing from there. Avraham goes down to Egypt, and he comes back. And Yitzchak doesn't go down, but Yaakov does and his children disappear 210 years and we wander in a desert 40 years and then we have to first conquer it and liberate it from the hands of the Canaanim Shushai Hatumah Vavodah the Canaanite nations we don't have to purge Israel of non-Jews Torah tells us those who subscribe to the seven Noahide laws who are willing to live as Noahides they're welcome to remain in the land and to sit by our side they can be fellow citizens of Israel it's only those who are filled with idolatry and paganism and foreign values and influence that we have to get rid of. So why? Why didn't we get smooth sailing right into the land of Israel? Why first was it in the hands of idolaters and pagans and we had to go through a process of purging it from them before we could acquire it? How about the fact that this entire world existed for 26 generations without the instruction manual? Before we had the blueprint, before we had the Torah Kedosha, before we had the Torah's Emes of Hashem, 
The world had to navigate for 26 years without ways. Can you imagine? I don't know how we lived without it. I do remember, mom and dad, we would drive, one had the map open, the other was driving, say, quick, turn on 1010 winds. It's about to be the traffic update. Should we take the West Side Highway? Should we take the FDR? Never in my family, but in others, a fight would ensue. I told you to take the FDR. There's always traffic this time of day. I know because I take it all the time. Why didn't we go the other way? I, I, I always tell people, and I don't understand that people don't do this. If I pull out of my driveway, I go on ways. I want to know from mine house to Thornhill Estates which way around the circle I should go. You have an eye in the sky telling you where there's traffic, where there are police, where there are accidents or broken down cars. Why wouldn't you use that? I, I don't, it boggles my mind. It's the same people who never get the easy pass and continue to pay in cash. Or who doesn't have TSA pre-check. I just, there's a whole group of people that I just don't, I can't believe that we inhabit the same earth. I just don't understand it. I just don't understand it. How do we get on this? Because Waze allows us to navigate the world. You have an eye in the sky and it teaches us how to go. It teaches us how to go. And I don't understand how you could be a responsible human being today and not want to know. And if it's a religious reason, you know how much bitl Torah there is sitting in traffic? If you want to learn more Torah, know how to get places faster. With all the time you'll save, you could finish Shas several times. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us Lahavdil, spiritual ways. It's called the Torah. Here's a complicated world. I have an eye in the sky, and I'm going to tell you how to navigate it. I'll tell you how to navigate relationships and food and pleasure and time. Follow my ways, called the Torah, and it will teach you how to navigate. You know what else it does? It's really cool that ways does. When you make that wrong turn with ways, sometimes by accident and often because you still think you're smarter than ways, it tells you to go that way. And you say, ah, oh, that's ridiculous that way. I've been driving my whole life. That's the wrong way. This is... And then you turn the corner and now you're stuck in traffic that doesn't move. And you say, oh, ways, I'm so sorry. I should have listened to you again. So the Torah also tells us, you know the beauty of the ways doesn't raise its voice. It doesn't yell at you. It very calmly says, you've made a wrong turn, we're rerouting. And it sets you on a new path towards your destination. And Hashem loves us. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't get exasperated. Same thing. He just says, rerouting you. Tshuva, let's get you back on the path, back on the derech of where you need to go. So we have this gift called ways. So why didn't Hashem give it to us right away from day one? You could ask that about both ways, physical ways and spiritual ways. Remember how excited we were with MapQuest? We thought that was incredible. It was as good as following the directions. If you made one wrong turn, your MapQuest printout was worthless. So we waited 26 generations to have the Torah. It's such an incredible co-pilot. Why didn't Hashem give it to us from day one? Why didn't He deposit man and woman in this world and from day one say, here you are, here's your Torah, it's your instruction manual. Don't leave home without it. So we waited. First we had to purge the Canaanite idolaters before we could get the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. It's 26 generations we waited before we got our Torah HaKadoshah. And this little boy has to wait seven days before he could get his bris and enter the covenant of... Torah was only given This is the way of the world, says Rav Nachman. First, there's Erev and then Boker. This is the way of the Jewish world. The rest of the world defines a day by morning and then night. But the Jewish people define our world by night and then day. First, we go through a period of night, of darkness, and then we 
blossom, and then the light, the sun rises, and then the light shines, and then there's illumination. So how do we live that way though? Why do we first go through that process? Why do we have to first spend our time navigating that darkness? And where's the holiness? If we are empowered and driven and energized by the Kedusha, by the holiness of Hashem, then why is the fruit hidden in the peel, in the shell? Then why is it we wait seven days, the bris is the eighth day? Then why did we have to wait to get out of Israel? Then why 26 generations towards Torah? Then why do we have to go through an Erev before a Boker? So he says the following. That the world only spins on the axis of Torah. Kodesh Baruch created the world for Torah. So what keeps the world spinning? What sustains our world when we're going through darkness? When we're in a period of Erev, struggling, challenged, confronting hardship, spiritually, emotionally, physically. How does that little boy go through the first seven days? How did we get through till we got Eretz Yisrael? How did we live 26 generations? And how do we get through our periods of dark before we encounter and break through to the light? The answer is, Within that shell and within that peel, within that darkness, there is a hidden light. It needs to be redeemed and it needs to be revealed. It needs to be exposed and it needs to be accessed. But inside it is incredible light, is incredible redemption, is incredible hope, is incredible faith. The umbilical cord is nourishing the baby. You could ask, the baby is in the womb. It's dark and it's cold. The baby is swimming in that amniotic fluid. It's all shriveled up and wrinkled. And nine months, we can't see it. The whole period of gestation, the baby is hidden in a period of Erev. It's dark. So how does the baby exist? Can't feed that baby. Can't feed that baby. Can't take the little baby food in the spoon. Little, here comes the airplane. Can't hold the bottle and put it in the baby's mouth. Can't nurse the baby. So how does the baby eat in the mother's womb? The answer is the umbilical cord that can't be seen but is nourishing all along. So to Kedusha. He is even in the hiddenness nourishing. Even in the darkness, there is a source of light. Even under the ground, there is a seed which is planted and it's already beginning to sprout and it's already beginning to blossom. He doesn't mention this from Nachman, but we're about to enter Chodesh Nisan. In the month of Nisan, we have a mitzvah. We make a bracha called Birchas Ha'ilanos, to go find a tree that is about to blossom and to make a bracha. When do you make the bracha? When do you fulfill Birchas Ha'ilanos? When the fruit emerges? When you could see the fruit? When you could smell the orange, the tangerine, the mango? No. When do you do it? When you see the flower, the bud that comes before the fruit. That's the halacha. You find a tree that is flowering, that's budding before the fruit emerges. Why is that when we make the bracha? Because it is our statement, our affirmation, that there is a fruit inside, and it will come, and it will be sweet, and it will be delicious, even if all right now is a flower. We are emerging from the dark winter, not here in Boca, 
we are holding on to the winter. Every day you come out and you're like, ah, oh, Baruch Hashem, thank God, still. I can breathe. Amazing. Baruch Hashem, should continue through Yontif. Should just continue through Yontif. But elsewhere, they're emerging from the dark and cold and frigid winter where the sky is gray 24 hours a day and the night falls at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and you have to defrost your windshield to see anything and you find that little blossom, that little bud and you say, oh, there is a fruit that's coming. And all winter long underneath the ground, it has been taking its nutrients and preparing to come forth. And that's what Akash Baruch the way he set up the world physically. And we make a bracha. Shalom Aleichem, welcome fruit, we've been waiting for you. We can't wait to hold you and to smell you and to taste you. And even though you're not here yet, we believe and we're confident you're coming. So we make a bircha sa'ilanos. We make this bracha on this tree. You'll see in the weekly this week, Zagis always invite the entire community to their backyard. They have fruit trees. Come make the bracha in the month of Nisan. If you have a fruit tree, if it meets the criteria, make it yourself. If not, come to their house. Says Rav Nachman, we too go through times of darkness, of hiddenness, of Hashem, of concealment. Where we are weighed down by physicality, by materialism, by sin. Even in that period of darkness, there's a spiritual umbilical cord. It's nourishing us, it's feeding us. Kosh knows there's a pure neshama inside us. There's a pintalayid that even though right now there's a hard shell, even right now there's a klipa, there's a peel, even though right now it's covered and cloaked in darkness. There's a pintalayid, there's a beautiful neshama, there's a beautiful Jew inside. There's a spark that's going to burst forth, that's going to blossom, that's going to be sweet and succulent and delicious and beautiful. Don't give up and don't despair and don't be hopeless. No matter how dark, no matter how bleak, no. That's how Hashem created the world, that it's Erev then Boker. We will see that light at the end of the dark. So why does the baby wait a week? Do the bris on day one. The answer is a year, a Jew has to go through seven days of darkness before the light. We wait till that fruit blossoms. That is the way of the world physically and spiritually. That is the design of creation. And it teaches patience. It teaches us that we have to be patient. It teaches us toil, that we have to work that you don't just access holiness without effort. It takes time and it takes work and it takes sacrifice. These aren't very popular words today. We live in an on-demand generation and world. What do you mean work? What do you mean time? I watch and I listen and I eat and I do on demand. My Uber Eats delivers on demand and my entertainment is on demand and my playlist is on demand. And then we turn to our spouse and children and we say, no, act on demand. But that's not how marriage works. That's not how children behave. And on demand, I want to download Shas into my head. But it takes seven and a half years to get through the Dafyomi. And on demand, I want davening to be over in two minutes. But it takes time to talk to your Creator. The world is not designed on demand. It's Erev then Boker. It takes time and effort and toil and patience to break through and burst through to the light, to get through the peel and the shell to the fruit. And that's why Hashem created that world and all of the examples that of Nachman grave, it takes that time. Okay, let's keep going. Uviyom Hashemini, Perakir Beis, Pasuk Yud Gimel. 
Adam kiyiyeh ba'or b'saro se'isu sapachas. Person has these negative uh, qualities we're talking about. I'm sorry. Let's go back. Not yet. Made a mistake. V'yomashmini. Perak yud beis pasuk yud gimel. Sorry. An insight from Rav Dessler. The Medrash says, it's a great insight from Rav Dessler. Still the eighth day, the bris. Eighth day is on the bris. The eighth day is the bris. The Medrash says, the Yalkut near Mio Lamed Gimel says the following. Shiyom HaShabbos and Mitzvah's Mila, his dainu zuim zu. I love these kind of midrashim. They're not meant to be taken literally, but they're communicating a message. Shabbos and Brismila got into an argument. Shabbos and Brismila got into a fight. Shabbos, Amrani Shabbos said, I'm greater than you. I'm the holy Shabbos. The Halak is Shabbos. Hamila And then Bris came to Shabbos and said, You think I'm bigger than you? I'm greater than you? So which one is it? Who's greater than whom? Is Shabbos greater or is Mila greater? What's the answer? You should all know. If you've ever attended a bris on Shabbos, you know that Shabbos, you're not allowed to do the things that are involved in a bris. You're cutting, you're bleeding, you're bandaging. The opinion of Rebelezer is even Heksher Mila is Docha Shabbos. You're allowed to cut down the branch, to start the fire, to forge a knife, to cut the baby. We don't pass in that. We say anything that can be done before Shabbos must be done before Shabbos. Only the things that can't be done are done on Shabbos. But which one supersedes the other? Shabbos. Bris is docha Shabbos. So who won the argument? Bris. Okay, Azoy, that's the Medrash. We know the halacha, that bris is docha Shabbos. A bris that falls on the eighth day. Not every bris that falls on the eighth day, by the way. If the baby is born through a C-section, the bris is not docha Shabbos. Why? Because the Pasuk says, what does the Pasuk say? Isha kisazria v'yalda zachar. She had to have given birth naturally, v'yalda. But it's a C-section, cesarean section. If the baby did not come out naturally, but, you know, crawled out through the window, did not exit the door, then it's not docha Shabbos. It has to be v'yalda. Is the opposite also true? What if the baby was not conceived naturally? It has to be violda to be Docha Shabbos. Does it also have to be Sazria to be Docha Shabbos? There's a discussion in halachic literature. If a baby is conceived with IVF and then born where the bris falls on the eighth day is Shabbos, is that bris Docha Shabbos? It's a big machlokas aposkim. Just like violda has to be naturally, does, does Tazria have to be naturally too? Interesting questions. So the baby, so that's the halacha. A bris is Docha Shabbos. Why is the Medrash, what is the Medrash adding in this depiction of this debate? What were they arguing about? What are they fighting about? Shabbos says, I'm bigger than you. Nah, 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 kish, kish. And Briss says, no, I'm bigger than you. And they're wrestling it out. And Briss wins. Says Rav Dessler, you can find this in Mechtav Melio, Chelek Aleph, page 226, says Rav Dessler, the following. What is Shabbos? Shabbos is putting Ruchnius into the Gashmias. V'yamashmi Shabbos, all week long we are chasing after this world. We're conquering, we're manipulating, we're working, we're changing, we're repairing, we're controlling this world. And then what do we do on Shabbos? We make peace with nature. We make peace with this world. We're done controlling, we're done manipulating, we're done being in charge of it. So Shabbos is We're putting the ruchnis into the gashmias. I lift my spoon of chicken soup and I say, the covered Shabbos Kodesh. On Tuesday night, it's just soup. 
But on Friday night, it's Lakavit Shabbos Kodesh. I'm putting the spirituality in the physical. That is Shabbos. What is bris? Histalkas Hagashmias. Uvayom Ashmini Yimol Besar Orlaso. The idea of the Orl of the, of the Mila is you are removing the physical. There was a physical Orla, there was a physical foreskin, there was a cover, there was a barrier, and you are removing the physical. So the Medrash can be understood as follows, says Rav Dessler. What was Mila saying? Putting Ruchnius into the Gashmius, that's nice. But you know what's even better? Transcending the Gashmius. It's dangerous to put Ruchnius into the Gashmius because you're still engaging the Gashmius. So you know what's even holier, what's even higher? Is transcending the Gashmius. Says that's what the debate was. Which is a better methodology? To try to add spiritual to the physical or to transcend the physical and become spiritual. And that's when Shabbos says, I'm greater. And Briss says, no, 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 your method is dangerous because you may confuse yourself. You may convince yourself that you're adding spiritual to the physical, but all you're really in doing is indulging the physical. So you need to elevate with spiritual. And Briss won out. Briss won out in that debate. So Desta very beautifully, I think, elucidates what was that debate, what were they arguing about. Okay, now we move to Parakut Gimel, Pasuk, Beis. We move on to the issue of, of Saras. The individual gossips or slanders is struck with a spiritual leprosy. It's not a physical leprosy. Saras is not leprosy. It is a spiritual disease and ailment, a spiritual leprosy. Parakut Gimel, Pasuk, Beis. Adam, ki yi yebor b'saros, se'esos apachas, u'beheres, Adam, doesn't say ish, doesn't say gever, says Adam. Why does it say Adam? We have many words for man. Torah has a glossary. Why do we employ Adam? We'll get to in a moment. If a person has on their skin, and it becomes taras, and to be brought to the Kohen, or to one of the Kohenim's children. One of the Kohanim's children it says, Vihaya, Vihaya, Boor Besaro. What does the word Vihaya always tell us? It's a Medrash, Bracious Rabbah, Membez. Kamakam Shekasa Vihaya Hu Lashon Simcha. Vihaya is Lashon Simcha. Vayahi is Tar, Vihaya is Lashon Simcha. So where's the Simcha? <laughs> the person comes to the Kohen, you gotta make a doctor's appointment. You're going to the spiritual dermatologist, you've got a significant problem. You've got a breakout. You've got a bad rash. You've got boils. Where's the simcha? Nobody skips and whistles to the dermatologist to hear that they need to put a little cortisone cream on it. So why would somebody vahaya? Where's the simcha? Where's the joy? Says the Ashech HaKadosh. The Helega Ashech HaKadosh. Do you know why you have tzaras? Tsaras are the physical manifestation that there's something wrong. There's tumma. There's poor behavior, there's poor judgment, there's poor choices. And that manifest that expresses itself on the skin with tsaras. 
And that's why it says, Adam ki ba'or basaro. Shem Adam mora amayla gavo yosem isho gever. Adam is the pinnacle. Adam and Adama were in a growth mentality. Adam is higher than ish and gever. Eitzel elu she'enam ba'aminam betumas ha'avon lo'osa ba'hem koroshem. Kimim b'minu enechotes. V'mkein davka maras negoim mochichem amayla sa'adam Yisrael. Having negoim is actually a healthy thing. You know why? Because it means your body is working and it's alerting you. Your spiritual antenna is alerting you that something's wrong. And that's a source of simcha. Pain is a good thing. You say pain is a good thing. We have an entire industry of pain management. Billions and billions and billions of dollars of pain management. How could pain be a good thing? The answer is nobody seeks pain or wants pain. There are unhealthy people who get pleasure from pain. But normal people, healthy people, don't get pleasure from pain, don't seek pain. So why is pain a good thing? Why is it simcha? The answer is, there are terrible illnesses and ailments where a person's nerve endings don't work, forms of neuropathy that you can't feel pain. A person can scratch or injure their leg or themselves. A person can have internal bleeding or organ failure and not feel pain and never know anything's wrong. And do you know how dangerous that is? You can Google it, look it up later, but you'll see that this rare but present disease is dangerous particularly in children who run and play and don't know something's wrong. You could break a bone, you could have a cut, you could have a really dangerous problem and not know it because you don't feel pain. So is pain good or bad? Is pain a gift? Is that an asset or liability? The answer is pain is a gift, pain is a great gift because it's an alarm system, it's an alert that something's wrong. It says the al when you break out in saras, boy, you're in good shape, you know why? Because the person is on such a low level that their body has not told them that something's wrong. The person is on such a low level with such low expectations and such a low bar and living such a low life that gossiping or slandering doesn't bring with it an alert or an alarm. If there's an alert or an alarm, it means you're capable of more and you are better and you could do more. And that's why it's v'haya lashen simcha. V'haya ba'or b'saro. That's why it's Vahaya, which is a Lashon of Simcha. And that should be our attitude. That should be our attitude, says the Ashik towards pain. Spiritual pain means, you know what? I could do more. I could be better. I could be better. So that's why shame is a very good thing. Busha. We've written a lot about in the past. It's actually a book on modesty coming out that I have an article in that talks about this. Malbush is me Lashon. Busha and Bosh. Chaim Sheishbahem. On the one hand, but on the other hand, busha is a prerequisite to tshuva. The notion of shame. Is shame good or bad? Shame, being shamed by others is bad. But feeling ashamed is very good. The person who never feels ashamed, it's a very, very dangerous thing. Just like a person who doesn't feel pain can engage in dangerous, lethal behavior and never knows where the boundaries are, the person who never feels ashamed, they dress around, they walk around immodest, naked, and there's no shame. Ramanus Friedman wrote a book, Does Anyone Blush Anymore? This is a generation, we're living in a world where nobody blushes. Billboards up and down 95, the state of dress or undress that people operate and live in, the language that people use, the way they behave at award shows, there's no shame anymore. No one's ashamed of anything. What happens when you have no shame, you have no boundaries. Because that shame is what protects and preserves those boundaries for us. 
person doesn't want to feel ashamed. That sense of shame is an alert, it's an alarm. It says, whoa, you've fallen. You've hit, you've hit rock bottom. Don't behave like that. You don't want to feel this way again. And when you don't feel ashamed by your behavior, by your speech, by your conduct, by your dress, then you don't know where those boundaries are. So shame is good, just like pain is good. So the individual who breaks out in saras, oh, v'haya is lashon simcha, baruch Hashem. The systems are all working. Systems are go. It's a good thing. Do we have saras today? That is a bad sign. We don't have saras today. When exactly did it stop in history? What was the last generation of Jews that had saras and went through the process of these two parshios of rehabilitation and of coming back from it? It's a great question to trace in history. But we don't have it today. You know why we don't have it today? We're on low levels. We don't live with the kedusha, the consciousness, the sanctity, the holiness that they once did. We're on relatively low levels. And on that low level, our alarm and our alert is broken. It's not working. So tsaras is an alarm and an alert. Is pain a good thing or a bad thing? It's good. It tells you something's wrong, go fix it. Is shame a good thing or a bad thing? It's good. It says you've crossed the line. Now protect it, operate and stay within it. And is saras good or bad? That's the Alshech's beautiful insight, that saras is good. It means systems go. It means everything's working. It means the alert and the alarm are intact. Now change and become better and be the way you're supposed to. Let's take a look at the Rav. Soloveitchik has a couple comments on this word, sapachasir. Says the Rav, Adam, Adam. In the Pasuk that introduces the topic of sacrifices, back in Vayikra, we read also the same word, not ish and not gever, but Adam, ki yakriv mikem karban lashem. Adam, it said, ki yakriv mikem, which literally means when a man brings a sacrifice, what's the next word? Adam, ki yakriv mikem. What does mikem mean? From yourself to God. In contrast, what does it say here? Adam, ki or besara. What's the word what that's missing? Mikem. It doesn't say Mikem. The inclusion of the word Mikem in the context of sacrifices and its absence, absence when discussing Tsaras indicates that when a Jew sins, he does so due to an external influence. His true internal and spiritual makeup is inconsistent with sinning. The Ramam uses the concept of Mikem to explain the halacha, that in the case of an individual is obligated to grant his wife a divorce but refuses to do so, Bezdan has the authority, Makinoso, you can administer lashes until he acquiesces. Makanoso, achi The halacha is we do not follow this today. Let me say this a million times to you, both to you and to the authorities. We do not do this today. We do not physically assault a person until they're willing to give the get. We have many who volunteered to do this today, but we do not do this today. But the Ramam says in Paskins, Makanoso, achi a man is recalcitrant. He's withholding a get from his wife. It's a form of abuse and torture. It's cruel. It's intolerable. It's unacceptable. So the Ramam says, you take him out back and you beat him until he says, oh, you know what? I forgot. I do want to give the get. With my broken bones and my black eye and my bleeding internal organs, I forgot. Thank you. You've reminded me that I really do want to give the get. So the Rav wonders, as all do, I don't understand. How can Bezan compel someone to divorce his wife? A get ma'us is puzzle. If a person gives a get out of coercion, it's invalid. If you give a get out of coercion, it's invalid. Is there a greater coercion than taking a beating? 
So the Rambam says, you know why? Because the individual, the Pintali, the holy spark, the holy neshama inside that Jew really wants to do the right thing. But it's buried deep inside the person. It's buried deep inside the person and they need some help bringing it up to the surface. You're breaking the Yetzirah so the Yetzirah Tov can shine through. You're allowing the Mikem, the individual person, to come out. So when it comes to the carbon, it's Adam Kiyakrev Mikem. That's who we really are. It's coming from inside us. But when it comes to gossip and slander, it's Adam Kiyeh Be'or Besaro. There is no Mikem. When you gossip and you slander, it's not your best self. You know, that's an expression. It's not mine. All motivational speakers use it. I've noticed other rabbis have also jumped onto that language. But I often give drushes and I talk about being our best selves. Being a better version of ourselves, being our best selves, moving towards a better version of ourselves. Again, it's not mine. I can't take credit for it. It's a great expression. It's how we're meant to live our lives. Don't be complacent. Don't be apathetic. Don't be satisfied with who you are, no matter what age you are, but be growing and changing and improving. Become a better and better and better version of yourself. Again, let's go back to technology. Anyone here have the iPhone 1? No. Anyone here have Microsoft Windows operating version 1? No. Every one of us, when it comes to every other area of life, we download the latest version. Did you upgrade? Did you download the latest version? Did you turn in your device for the newest version? But then when it comes to our davening and our Chumash understanding, we're still on version 1.0 in first grade. Have you upgraded your version of your davening? Have you upgraded your patience? Have you upgraded your philanthropy and your generosity and your kindness? Or you're still operating in version 1.0? Every other area of life we upgrade and we're not satisfied. And here, that's what the Rav is saying, Mikem. You gotta be a better and better version of yourself. So kiyakriv, a carbon, what comes from within, that's the true us. Gossip and slander, that's not the best you. That's the worst version of you. And therefore it's not Mikem, it doesn't come inside us. I want to tell you something extraordinary. There was a person who didn't get a get for a long time and we worked and fought very hard for her. To court several times and we had demonstrations and we, it was a very arduous process, painstaking process, personally painful process. And the get was given to the credit of the person. And an individual who I had gone to court to testify against after the get was given needed help and I went then to testify for, to keep out of jail to advocate on his behalf, particularly now that he had given the get and done the right thing, I thought had turned the corner and was being a much better version of himself and deserved that support and encouragement to keep doing it. And after testifying and the judge ruled in his favor, and she had anticipated not doing so, she shared, but did because she believed his change. Outside the courtroom, I was a little nervous to see him, hadn't really spoken to him. And he gave me a big hug, we hugged each other and he apologized and he said, I want you to know that divorce brought out the worst part of me. But I really wanted to do the right thing all along and I'm so happy I gave the get. It was mamish the words of the Rambam coming alive for me. It was the words of the Rambam coming true. Kofinoso achiyome rotsani. Kofinoso. We have to give encouragement. Today we don't do it with whips and chains and fists and weapons. Today we do it with social media and demonstrations and social pressure. But we're not doing it because we don't love the person. You need to know, and anyone listening needs to know, that when a Bezdin, because not every woman who decides she wants her get is an Aguna, a Bezdin has to paskin, that the circumstances are such that the time is that the woman should have received her get. 
Not everybody who wakes up and says, I want a divorce, and if you don't give me the get by this afternoon at 3 o'clock, I'm in Aguna and we're going to demonstrate. There's a process. There are men who are recalcitrant and abusive, and there are women who are manipulative and who do parental alienation and do things wrong, and the community has to look objectively and fight for justice and defend the party that is the victim, and it's not always one gender, and it's not always one side, and we need to be fair. But when it's been determined, only when it's been determined by a competent, reputable base, then that the get should be given, you need to know that when we demonstrate or apply that social pressure, it's not because we don't love the man, it's because we love him more than he loves himself, and we want him to do the right thing. So the kofenoso is achiyome rotsani, and that's why the word mikem, that's why the mikem, adam kiyakar mikem, when it comes to the karbon, and the word mikem is omitted here in the gossip and slander because it's not the best version of us. It's Adam instead, Adam uh, who sees these uh, conditions. And then the Rav adds another beautiful insight, but we're running out of time. So we'll come to that to the second insight of the Rav another time. Moving right along. Perak Yud Gimel Pasuk Yud Dalad. Perak Yud Gimel Pasuk Yud Dalad. Page 612. We have an obligation to take the individual to the Kohen. It's a very unusual disease. You don't actually, you're not diagnosed with the disease because of the disease. When are you diagnosed with the disease? Only when the Kohen diagnoses it. Chalila, a billion times over. A person broke a bone and they go to the, they go to the orthopedist and the radiologist looks at the x-ray. When are they, when do they have the broken bone? When they broke the bone or only when the doctor says, you have a broken bone? Which is it? I had a child once who broke a finger, arm. It's a long time ago. We got the x-ray, we're waiting at the doctor and doctors are very busy, they're wonderful, but you can wait. As a comedian says, it's called a waiting room for a reason. Don't expect to do anything other than wait there. And the x-ray was put up on that light box and the doctor came in and looked at it and said, yeah, it's sprained, it's not broken. Now, while we were waiting, we were bored, so I went on Google and was comparing her x-ray to the x-rays I could find on Google Images to see whether there was something wrong. So I pointed out to the doctor, but wait, isn't that like a little hairline fracture? He said, oh, yeah, it is actually. And we found the broken bone. Anyway, but doctors find the broken bone. So when do you have the broken bone? When it's broken or only when the doctor declares it broken? God forbid a bazillion, gazillion times over. When is a person diagnosed Khalila with cancer? When only when the oncologist says there's cancer or when there's cancer. Yet here is a very funny halacha. It's only when the Kohen examines and declares saras that the diagnosis takes effect and the recovery process begins. The person has to live outside the camp and so on. Why? It's an objective diagnosis. Who cares whether the Kohen declared it or not? What difference does that make? So the Mishnah Nagarim, Rashi here quotes the Mishnah Nagarim, Pasuk says, On the day healthy flesh appears, it shall be contaminated. So the Mishnah Nagayim explains the word uvayom, which seems redundant, uvayom. We just said you bring the person to the Kohen, the Kohen examines it. So why does it say, and on that day? So the Mishnah Nagayim teaches us, uvayom excludes certain days the Kohen does not examine a nega. When the Rambam paskans this way, so the Rambam paskans based on the Mishnah Nagayim, that a chassan, let's say, right after the wedding, let's say right after the wedding, the chassan says, huh, something on my arm. 
I don't know what this is. I'm worried. What if it's Nagayim? What if I have Tzaras? Does he go to the Kohen? The halacha is a chasan is given respite for all Sheva brachas. The Kohen does not examine, does not declare, and therefore the person doesn't have. What about Yantif? The Raman Paskins halacha. Yantif, the Kohen does not examine, the Kohen does not declare, and therefore... Now, we can understand this, right? Leprosy is contagious. We know that. Baruch Hashem, we for the most part solved it, but there was a time there were leper colonies that people were isolated, that they had to be in... In fact, until two years ago, no one ever used the word quarantine other than in the context of, context of leprosy. No kid ever, now little two-year-olds, quarantine! They never heard the word quarantine. Whoever heard the word quarantine before two years ago other than talking about lepers and leprosy? Why? Because the leper needs, why do they need to be quarantined? Because it was highly contagious. So imagine, imagine, you don't have to imagine, because this has been the case in many times, but imagine the chasam right after the wedding says, I don't smell anything. I don't taste anything. Do we say, Shashtel, there's been a lot of Sheva Brachas prepared, a lot of work went into this, don't talk about it, just go to Sheva Brachas, we'll deal with it afterwards. I think there might be people who've done that, it's irresponsible and wrong, but that's wrong. Does it not, is it not contagious because we told the chasen don't talk about it? It's absurd, of course it's contagious. So why is this okay? We say, we don't, the Kohen will not see you today. Enjoy your Sheva Brachas, we'll deal with it afterwards. Leprosy is contagious. How does that work? So Kodesh Baruch made that the halacha. It's not contagious unless it's classed by the Kohen. And why did he do that? So Rav Bender, who was here this year, Rav Bender, of Yaakov Bender, Rosh Hashib of Darche, who's a great educator and a great person. They came out with a beautiful, I bought this at the Wai's farm sale, Rav Bender on Chumash. Beautiful insights on Chumash he has. And he says it's remarkable. The negative would seem to be a Metzias. Here we see the Metzias, the reality is itself subject to the laws of Rachmanus. Hashem's compassion shines through. In fact, it is not an objective diagnosis. And unlike a broken bone or cancer or COVID, you do not objectively have it, whether the doctor has diagnosed it or not. There's a whole Masechta and Mishnah is teaching us the Allah and the Gaim. But the Torah is teaching us about sensitivity. And that's the lesson. The importance of sensitivity towards the simple joy of Yontif, the right of every Jew, is taught in the Parsha of Nagayim for a reason. The Baal Lashonara is missing the sensitivity. He disparages and belittles, unable to perceive the reality of others. But the Torah says to him, feel with another, think of another, see their reality, and perhaps you'll be kinder, gentler, and more sympathetic. You know Chassan, or you know person going into Yantif? You've gossiped, you've slandered. You made a person feel all alone and invisible in this world. You hurt someone else. Really, maybe you deserve to feel that way, but the Torah is going to be sensitive to you. The Torah is going to show you what you did not show someone else. So enjoy your Sheva Brachas or enjoy the Yantif because the Torah is going to show the very sensitivity that you need to learn. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, yes, objectively you should have it, be diagnosed with it. It should be able to contaminate others. But Hashem says, I'm going to practice the very sensitivity that you failed to show. And that's why this is a very unusual diagnosis, that it's not objective and it doesn't take effect that is a law that Kodesh Baruch Hu embedded in it in a very unusual, maybe unique fashion to demonstrate the very sensitivity that this person failed to have and that we should have had. What's also interesting, Rav Bender points out, quotes Rav Pincus, is that, what's also interesting is that you see, what are the exemptions? One is it that we don't examine the tzaras and therefore we sensitively spare the person from being isolated in a period they should be with others. What are the two times? A chasen, with Sheva Brachas and Yantif. What do you see from here? You're supposed to be as happy going into Yantif 
as you were walking down your aisle. You know, the chasen, the build-up, the lead-up, the wedding day. We just had a beautiful wedding in Ofrof. The simcha was palpable. It was tangible. It was electric. It was incredible. Everybody's excited going into their wedding day. And every yontif is supposed to be that same level of simcha. Because you'd say, spare the chasen. Maybe someone would say, Pesach, chutz lamachana, all alone. They have to clean and cook. Okay, give me tzaras. Bring it on. Don't be so sensitive. Don't spare me. But now you see the Simchas Yantif is supposed to be such that we'd never want to miss it. That we'd never want to lose out on it. That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. Oy, there were so many more ideas, but I want to tell you one more, only because I want to quote the Megid Yosef because it's going to be here the Shabbos. The Megid Yosef of Sarotskin will be here the Shabbos. Yosef Yehudalev Sarotskin. And he's going to be giving the Chabura after the 815 minion. So you can go up to him and tell him that you hear the Megid Yosef quoted often in the Parsha Shir. He's staying at his son who lives on my block. So the Megid Yosef says the following. Pasuk tells us, V'tame tame yikra. We're going to end with this. Perak gimel, Pasuk mem hey. Perak gimel, Pasuk mem hey. Page 616. The tsarua, the person with tsaras in whom there's an affliction, his garment shall be rent, his hair shall be unshorn, he shall cloak himself up to his lips, and he is to call out, I am tame tame. So the person with Tsaras has to call out that they are Tame. Why do they call out that they are Tame? We're humiliating them, we're bringing that shame which is healthy for boundaries? Maybe, according to some. But that's not what Chazal said. The Gemara Moed Kotan says, When a person is going through a hard time, they should not hide it. They should not even be embarrassed of it. And they should not be private. Let the people around you know. You know why? Because then others will daven for you. It wasn't easy to ask everyone, but they decided, her parents, that the benefit of everybody davening and doing mitzvahs and doing everything they could in her merit was more important and far outweighed their privacy and their reluctance and their hesitancy. Not an easy decision, I promise you. But that was this Gemara. That is this Gemara. So the Chavetz Chaim wonders, why is the Mitzorah different than anyone else going through a hard time? Why couldn't this Gemara teach this about anyone else? Khalil, a person is diagnosed with an illness, tell everybody so they'll daven for you. Person is looking for a shirk, tell everyone they'll daven for you. Person is infertile, tell everyone they'll daven you have a child. Why did the Torah specifically choose the case of the Mitzorah to teach this lesson? That when you're going through a hard time, don't keep it private, don't bury it, let people know so they can daven for you. The Chavetz Chaim says, Shetzaraz ba'al avon lashon hara, ve'ain tefilasa shabal lashon hara nishmas, lekach acheren tzrichen lesbal avuro. Because a person who gossips and slanders, God's not interested in what they have to say. Why? That person has violated and abused the power of speech. They've used it to harm, not to build. So God says, the same you. You just spent that time gossiping and slandering others. You just spent that time talking about my other children. And now you're going to come daven to me? I'm not interested in your prayers. So specifically, this person needs the prayers of others. So everybody needs others to pray for them. But they can also pray for themselves. But the Baal Lashonara, the person with Tzara'as, can't daven for themselves because they've abused their power of speech. They need to ask others to daven for them. But So why specifically here? Mashain came Bishar Balitzari Khan Gamakhir in the Farsim. 
When it comes to somebody who wants to get married, somebody who wants to have a baby, somebody who's looking for a job, someone who wants to buy a house, anyone could say, look, could you daven for? We do it left and right when someone needs tefillos. We ask on their behalf. But what would happen if we did that for the Mitzorah? We say, hey, we're going to put in the bulletin. So-and-so is a Mitzorah. Could everybody please say Tehillim on their behalf? Everyone's going to say, ah, oh, of course they're a Mitzorah. They speak Lashonara all the time. What are we going to do by announcing that? We're going to be speaking Lashonara about them. So we can't say it for them. They can say it for themselves. And that's why the rabbis chose this specific crisis to teach the lesson Tell others so they'll daven for you. Because this specific case, others can't announce for you. You need to announce for yourself. That's why the rabbis chose this case. It's a great insight to hear more. You come here on the Shabbos, the Megid Yosef. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Have a fantastic day. If anyone needs to sell chametz, I'm available for the next hour to arrange the sale of chametz. It is that time of year again. So we put out a lot of times, but you can begin right now.